This is Michael, you're listening to Models of Masters, and I'm so grateful you're here. I'm breaking down personal stories, learned wisdom, and pieces of insight I hope can help you along your journey. Head over to my website, michaelbecker.org, for much more. And with that, let's get right into the show. Hey guys, in this episode, I'm going to be sharing a Q&A that I did with Dana Robinson, who is the author of two books, Opt Out and Gig Out, where he advocates for side hustles over business ownership for people that want that pinnacle of lifestyle design and freedom, specifically time freedom, that it seems like everyone's talking about. And this is a topic, you know, that I've been really given a lot of thought to myself over the last few years because... You know, first when this entrepreneur wave, this latest, you know, social, cultural, you know, uh, dynamic started to evolve around this spotlight or pinnacle of entrepreneurship, like I dove in, I fully admit and wanted to just to, to just be this version. I wanted to identify with being an entrepreneur and being a business owner and having a hustle mentality and all of those things. And what I realized quickly is not only was I trying to compress something that takes five years into five weeks, but also I became more clear on what it is that I really want. And I do not want to be someone who is sitting behind a computer for 15 hours a day. I just don't want that. And, you know, I would, I realized I had to go through kind of those experiences of seeing how difficult it actually is to break through as a coach online i don't care what anyone says i don't care what kind of marketing people are putting out i don't care how easy people make it sound i can tell you from firsthand experience being a marketer my entire life that it's just not as easy as snapping your fingers hiring a coach and making it so breaking through and actually creating life long sustainable supporting income for a even for a like minimally viable lifestyle, which to me feels like $4,000 to $5,000 a month take-home income, let alone those big you know, five-figure months that everybody's talking about, $10,000 a month, 20K, 30K, 40K. It's possible. I've seen people do it, but it's not as easy as what people want you to think. And that's all that I'm saying, and it takes time to get there. And as hard as... I, as hard a worker as I am, I realized that what I really want is happiness, joy, fulfillment, and coaching gives me all of those things. But I've been stepping back lately and just saying, what, is this working? Um, what, what do I really want for my future and how am I going to get there? And as Dana and I discuss, a business that you own, especially one that requires you to work in it, to actually generate income like any coach or solopreneur also is going to consume your time, at least for a period in your life. And so what we discuss instead as another option is to look for side gigs, is to look for assets that can give you maximum monetary output with minimal physical input. And I'm very clear now that I would much rather own a $2,000 a month or $1,000 a month business that requires one or two hours of my time per week than a 50k a month business that requires me to sit behind a computer for 15 hours a day um i just don't want that the way that i i don't know tried to convince myself that i did for a while now if it's purely money that you're after and you're willing to pursue that no matter the cost then that's a different story but if it's about optimizing for lifestyle and time freedom then what you want to do is you want to invest in several side gigs or passive income assets like a rental property or an Airbnb arbitrage play, both of which I am actively working on right now um, or pursuing. Um, And you want to have those passive channels that are working for you that don't require anything while you have your day job or your coaching business or your side gig. Now, that's just if you are of the mindset that I am, which is that you want to build your life and optimize it around time freedom. It could also be that you have chapters in your life where you go heads down for a year or two and you build so that you can have your time freedom down the line, which is also 
a possibility for a lot of people and something that I'm also thinking about and working on. So anyways, that's a lot of what we chatted about in this episode. I think you're really going to like it. We talk about working, you know, working hard versus working smart. We talk about making, making investments, what kinds of investments Dana looks at and looks for, um, as well as his journey to where he's at now, which is a full-time investor, author, writer, coach, and teacher and I really really enjoy this conversation and I hope that you can relate and I hope that you that you find a lot of value as well all right we will jump right in all right guys welcome back to scaling sciences I'm Michael and today I'm joined by a special guest Dana Robinson Dana is a serial entrepreneur and multiple business owner he's also the author of several books Opt Out, which I'm geeking out on as we speak, and his latest book called Gig Out, which is the basis for what we'll be chatting on today. So if you're going after financial freedom, if you're on a mission to leave the rat race and replace your day job with other cash flow streams in today's digital economy, this episode is going to be invaluable for you. So with all that said, Dana, thanks for your time today, and I'm glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Michael. Uh, stoked to be talking about stuff that gets me excited and the stuff I usually am kind of handing off to anyone that I can you know, get to listen to me. Yep, absolutely. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Um, you know, there are so many options for side hustles out there. Um, I read about your your beginnings a little bit in in the book, but for people that don't know you, can you share a little bit about kind of those early days um, from an investing and an entrepreneurship standpoint for you? Yeah, I, I mean, my, I, I'm not like these gurus that have like done something amazing and sold a business for hundred million dollars. Uh, and in some ways that, you know, makes my story less sexy than I think, you know, the, the people that are out there with like their, their big wins their home runs. But what I realized it was that I was surrounded by a bunch of people who had made money from base hits, side gigs, yeah. you know, kind of taking their shot at different things. And I realized that's actually the most common entrepreneurial journey is that we're learning from the school of hard knocks. We're taking our chances on, you know, different ideas and learning from those. And, and sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you're smart. Sometimes you're an idiot. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I was just ambitious when I was young. I started a landscape business while I was a sophomore in college and, and ran that for almost four years. And then started a coffee house, which was a really bad idea, but, you know, sold both about the same time. Um, and then, uh, you know, took about three or four years working and, and finishing a master's and then, you know, went to law school to kind of take a career pivot. But, I, you know, what I wanted when I went to law school was to be entrepreneurial and have something that would give me an edge, something that would make me a smarter business person than I was because I, I wouldn't consider the landscape business in the coffee house anywhere near the success I wanted. Yeah. Um, and so as an early lawyer, I was just counseling entrepreneurs. So I was around entrepreneurs, watching, learning, um, and had an opportunity to do a little side business with a client. Um, and, and that kind of worked out for a short cycle. We rehabbed a nursery and then sold it and made six figures and used that to buy a property management business and kind of get uh, an opportunity to segue out on my own as a lawyer and, and really be able to put my time where I wanted it instead of working for you know the W-2 wages. And then over the course of, you know, the following almost 20 years, I've, you know, made, a, I made a, a lot of bad decisions, <laughs> a lot, a lot of business ideas where, where we went into the business, not understanding the gravity of it, really the size, you know what I mean? Gravity, if you think of like mass, the, the amount of energy that needs to be put into something, the amount of money. Um, and what I realized in, in kind of the entrepreneurial journey of my own was that I wasn't alone in this idea that there's a pretty important distinction between knowing when something is a real business and that it's going to take that kind of time and investment and knowing when not to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Because the, the mistake I had made several times was going into something thinking it was kind of a side gig, a little side hustle, make some extra money, not take much time. Um, and then pretty soon it's sucking time. It's needing money. You don't know whether you should, you know, put a bullet in it because it's sucking up your time and your money. Um, you know, the business plan evolves and changes and, you know, years into it, you realize this was a, this was just a bad decision. The way we approached it doesn't mean the business was a bad idea. It just means that the plan should have been a lot more funding, a lot more humans, mm -hmm. a lot more intention, a lot more planning and execution. So the, you know, the, I, when I wrote opt out, I was on the sabbatical 
hanging out in Bali. My wife and I rented a house and lived there for 14 months. And when I got to the side gig chapter of opt out, which is the opt out is kind of like my approach to money that says, look, you can live the good life now. Yeah. You don't need to cash out like all these other guys. Like, cause I realized, well, what's the difference between me and the, and this guy, you know, down the street, I'm living in a mansion and driving nice cars and I work for myself and I control my time. Uh, and I hadn't cashed in millions of dollars at the time. And, and it occurred to me, well, you know, that the focus was, was being sure I preserved my autonomy, you know, through doing things that would give, empower me to make money that, that was adequate for me to, to have the life that I wanted. Um, and, and so in Bali, I started writing the sort of how-to guide because I had a lot of people that really were just like, Dana, you know, you have this cool life. How, what are you doing? And, you know, I, I wanted to demystify it, um, to just say you could be a trash digger and, and scrappy entrepreneur and have all the good stuff and good life and, and all the secrets I just dumped into that book. But the, the side gig chapter got bigger and bigger and bigger because I realized how many of the stories and um, adventures and misadventures came from playing in side gigs. Um, so I saved that content, kept a little bit in the side gig book, but then I wrote the opt out book entirely focused on the side gig. And, and the, the big lesson, I mean, that we can talk about ideas and good ideas, bad ideas or whatever, but the thing that I realized made a side gig something unique from a regular business was that a side gig should produce the most amount of income for the least amount of your time and the capital that it's going to require. Mm -hmm. um, that's a side gig. And that's, a, that's going to empower someone to get into business, to get out of their job, to, to it, it's a, it's a fulcrum point. It's a point of leverage to get you what you want. And sometimes they blossom. Sometimes you do see side gigs turn into something big, but it's, it's not, it's not that common. I mean, I've talked a lot about uh, this website I built when I was in law school. It's a janky website called freelegalaid.com. I have this website that makes two grand, sometimes three. There was a point when I was in Bali, I probably had some 35 and $4,000 months, almost entirely passive on work that I would, you know, that I had done years before and that every now and then I'd kind of have a, you know, month where I throw in a few hours. Well, if I wanted to make that into a business, I'd have to hire people and build an app and spend you know, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars and invest my, like my mind share, my time, that would have to be a thing that I go, I'm going to make this a multi-million dollar business. Right. And it wouldn't be any better than any uh, many better ideas, to be honest. It'd be better to buy a plumbing HVAC company than to invest in making free legal aid the, the next killer app. But I certainly like having a couple thousand dollars a month in cash flow that I don't have to work for. So helping people like see that really clearly is the point of the gig out book. And it has a lot of ideas along with the principles. So it's a book you could probably find a hundred ideas in, but the point of it is to, to kind of existentially understand, don't make the mistake that, that will break the bank, which is to think you're getting into this cheap little side gig that's going to throw off some cash flow and realize, oh, this is taking all my time and it needs more money and it's not going to make a profit for another year, right? This doesn't empower you to be free. This is buying yourself a job. So that's kind of the, the, the evolution of how I got to kind of like talk a lot about side gigs and, and almost all the examples and stories are those that are firsthand, that they're people I have known and kind of my network and, um, things I've done myself. So I try to stay true to what I know in, in the book. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And I think that kind of having that background is, is going to be really helpful for, for our listeners. Um, and for me as well, I'm interested. So I guess whether, you know, the landscaping business back in the day or the coffee house or um, the things that you have gotten involved in since then, what was your mindset when you when you started those those businesses being, you know, a young guy back in college? Were you looking at it at the time as a side gig, knowing that it would just be something to propel you to the next stage in your life? Or were you more thinking like, let me see how big I can grow this and see what it can become? Yeah, with the, the the landscape business was the realization at a W two job that work sucks, right? That working for people sucks. That yeah. people, you know, uh, I worked at a retail store. People were catty and toxic, and managers were, you know, kind of, I don't know, just un, not an impressive feeling of, of a way to make a living. And at the end of the day, what you get to keep just didn't seem adequate. I had this epiphany that when I was the kid mowing lawns in the neighborhood, I did better. And I wasn't, you know, even really 
running a business. I was the kid mowing neighbor's lawns. <laughs> when you add it up, I was like, wow, I made $20 an hour on average as a, as a teenager. And here I am at 20 working at the mall and I'm making, you know, $11 an hour at, with commissions and spiffs and all that stuff. So, you know, I, I just thought, well, I can mow lawns. I know I can do that. And I know I can make more per hour than I do working here. And I bought a lawnmower and I put it in the back of my wife's golf, you know, Volkswagen hatchback. And I went around and handed up, put, put flyers in neighborhoods and, and just started it. So it really was a side gig. Um, it became a business when one of my customers fired his landscaper because he hired me. And it turned out that the, the guy he fired was his brother-in-law and <laughs> brother-in-law called me. I'm like, uh, hi, <laughs> you going to yell at me for taking your brother's giant house as an account. And he said, no, no, I've got a real job now. I'm managing someone else's business. I, I want to sell you my business. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know what does buy a business mean when you're 20 yeah. years old. Yeah. Um, so I went down to his house and, and had an iced tea with him and his wife and their expensive dogs. And, and, uh, he just said, work my accounts for a month. Let me bill for the month as if I'm working them. I'm going to keep all that money for the payment and the rest of the business is yours run. So I did that. I worked for free for a month and then realized that I needed to hire a couple of guys. It was, you know, me mowing lawns, wasn't going to hack it. And I turned it into a business, you know, and had to learn payroll and accounting and paying bills and collection and, um, you know, the, the enter the world of kind of a business. But I did view it as a side business because it was there to get me through college without having to get a real job. Um, and then it wasn't really till I sold it that I realized that it was a thing. Like I, I, I was running the coffee house that I'd started and thought, well, now I'm burned out from running two businesses. So how do we sell this business? And my wife picked up what back then was the phone book and looked up landscapers in the regions and then divvied up the business into two regional yeah. businesses and sold them as, as sort of books of business. And I think we got three times the monthly gross income which was three times what I paid the other guy when I, when I got the business, but I, I sort of had a click about like, Oh, you could buy and build a business and, and sell it too. Like that was kind of a realization that businesses are assets. And then when we sold the coffee house. It was more like we realized we'd made a bad mistake. <laughs> and my wife was pregnant and I was finishing my master's and we just thought, well, let's see if anyone will buy this. And I think we lit back then again, sort of in the nineties newspaper, pre-internet, um, found a buyer that was retired that wanted something to do and, and sold them the business and kind of paid back a little debt and licked our wounds. Um, but yeah, the, I think they, they, in our minds were side gigs and probably shouldn't have been the, the landscape business, what I could have made into a real business if I had put myself into it full time mm -hmm. and, and thought about it like a business and treating it small, kept it small. And then, you know, when I sold it, I didn't, I can't say I made a lot of money. It was just an experience of being able to go through a sale early in, you know, my life, 22 or 23 years old. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that I, that I'm always thinking about too, is kind of the desire to, to, you know, build wealth and become an entrepreneur and start acquiring businesses. It, it hits everybody at a different time and at a different age. Like for you, it was in your early twenties. It sounds like for me, I'm 30. I feel like over the last year, maybe two, I've just really been kind of taken on this new, this new wave that, um, is really, really inspiring me and motivating me to, to, to do all of the things that we've been talking about. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's interesting on just how our life circumstances and our, you know, our, our, our maybe our standard of living our, our family, our conditioning, all of those things, you know, put us in a position individually where we, you know, we have, we have a choice on, do we want to continue with the status quo or do we want to learn how to, how to break away and break free? And there's no right or wrong time for, for you. If, if you're listening, like Dana got started earlier than, than I got started, for example, but it's about the long term, right? And when you look at this as not a five year thing, but as a, a 50 year plan, um, it helps to put things in perspective, I think a little bit. And, that's not to say that within the next year or two, you can't create real change for yourself. Like you absolutely can. Um, but I would be interested to know your perspective, Dana, on, you know, for, for those people that regardless of where they're at now, but they're looking at maybe a, a one to two year runway, what are some of the things they should be doing right now to position themselves to actually have a different lifestyle than where they're currently at in the next couple of years? Yeah. So 
I think that's a great question. I think it's having that, giving yourself a period of time to, to think and to plan and to learn is, is really good. I think a lot of people don't do that because they make the, the entrepreneurial leap out of some, uh, other driver, you know, like I, I, the story of one of my good friends who we've been business partners in several deals, he got to, uh, his, his job and couldn't lift his hand, to open the door. He was having a panic attack about having to go to the office like one more time, you know, he just hated it. And he, he just left. He, he just turned around and was like, goodbye that, you know, I think he phoned in his resignation. And then we, we met a couple of weeks later and started talking about business. He missed the opportunity to have that runway of planning and learning mm. um, without the stress of whether or not you're earning yet. So I think it's a great idea to say, Hey, I've got the entrepreneurial bug. I'm going to get there Yeah, and I need to give myself a runway. And, and what am I going to do between now and then exactly. the number one thing I think is to recognize that you probably don't know what you don't know. Yes. So the first quest is to kind of frame the outlines of what you don't know, not, not um, sort of jump in. I, for example, a lot of people rush into the startup community and, and to just define this so that people understand it. The startup community is where entrepreneurs, people with experience or sometimes not, bring their ideas to venture investors who, who say, I'll back that good, bad or, or ugly idea. Uh, the, the venture community is driven by uh, pitches like you see on Shark Tank. Um, and a lot, most entrepreneurs don't make their big win on a venture like that. They don't go into funded ventures. 90% of those, I think, is the stat fail. Um, the, uh, the person with the idea gets wildly diluted. They get a salary and, and then a job working for the investors. So, you know, going into a business and saying like, I want to be an entrepreneur is, is a good start, but then saying, I don't know what I don't know. I'm going to learn about the startup world. Is that for me? Do I want to go fundraise and get investors and then lead a business that, that where I'm the working executive, or do I want to go acquire a business because you can, you know, get SBA loans and get a seller to carry paper and buy a business. And then if that's the case, there's a whole sort of process to go through to, to search and buy businesses There's brokers involved in financings. And then, of course, there's the what do I do if I, if I don't have any of those resources and, and that in many cases, the easiest pathway to step out onto your own is actually to do what you do now at a job as a consultant. So yeah. when, when I went on my own, I bought a property management business that my wife ran, but I stayed lawyer. I just went from lawyer on W2 to lawyer for a couple of small clients. And um, I can think of, you know, Nate, my, my opt out business partner. Um, he was running SEO, SEM, you know, uh, long tail marketing, digital marketing for, a, you know, in a partnership and took the skills where he had been employee, became a partner. And then when he went on his own, he built agencies on that skill. He still consults on that skill, even though he has, you know, business investments across a, a pretty large portfolio. He still does what most people don't realize that is the skill you've got right under your nose now might be the business that gives you the tool to go on your own. So again, that, that, that give yourself some time to learn the business world, learn the outlying um, kind of boundaries of what you don't know, you don't know. So you sort of amass more exposure to what you don't know is going to make you humble and, and keep you from making bad decisions, like opening a coffee house. Um, yeah. The, uh, you know, I, I did a trade show that was not a good idea. I was involved with an import export business that it was, it was starting to function, but before the 08 crash hit, but it was, you know, probably seemed like a side gig and turned into a big business where we had operations and employees in another country. So, you know, they, there's bad ideas that, that may come along, but the more you sort of in, in, enroll in this process as like, I'm going to learn not just the things, the mechanics, like you can watch my videos on LinkedIn learning. You can learn a lot about business, business law, networking, and, and how to this and how to that. But sort of step back and say, like, I need to just understand, like, wow, okay, there's a startup world. That's a thing. There's a acquired business world, and, and that's where private equity is. And, and you can learn about how private equity functions and, um, and and whether there's a role there. There are roles for people new to business where private equity backs the, the business that they're getting involved with. Um, kind of give yourself the time to not just get the tools, but to really 
immerse yourself in into all the information so you have a lot every day should be another oh i didn't know i didn't know that i didn't know that at all i didn't know those words i didn't know what they were talking about so that that would be to me the, the like build up while you still have something that's paying your bills on your journey to be fully autonomous entrepreneur guy is it fair to say that your strategy today is still aligned with this you know this side hustle gig economy um mindset in other words i guess i'm curious what your current portfolio looks like in terms of the things you've got running on the side versus what kind of takes up most of your time during your day-to-day yeah. So yes, my strategy is the same as the, I've done everything that I wrote about an opt out uh, every day and every month since I wrote the book. So I, and I could probably plot a five year period since writing the book of doing more of what I told people to do. So I've acquired more rental properties. I have rehabbed and re- refinanced them so that I'm cash flow positive on, on my rental properties. So the, I could live as long as I keep my lifestyle conservative, I could live on rental property income. Can I, can I ask, can I ask yeah. where, can I ask where the majority of your properties are? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we, we can chase one real quick, quick rabbit. I'll give you my, uh, my hard learned lesson on real estate. Um, all of mine are in San Diego where I can get to them. Okay. But I did, uh, before the 08 crash, I had accumulated, uh, 80, 90 doors, uh, across three apartment complexes in downtown Phoenix. I had with oh. a partner entitled those. That's yeah, where I so, live now, Matt. <laughs> Ah, yes. Well, we had two two complexes on Portland Avenue at Seventh and Third, and another one at Roosevelt and Eleventh. So you know the neighborhoods probably. I, I that was my. Yeah, that's right, Matt. Yeah. So uh, the the during that time, of course, had we held till now, we, we'd have made millions more. But the the lesson I really learned from like an owner operator standpoint in terms of, of real estate investing was if I'm going to own and operate and like directly manage my properties, um, I need to be able to get to them easily. What I found with the, even an hour flight was that, you know, the, the story that I like the most is that, uh, a manager that I had who was kind of a maintenance guy was pretty good, but it turned out his girlfriend was a drinker. And I got a call one day that said, I just uh, walked into my apartment and found so-and-so drinking the vodka out of my freezer. And it was his girlfriend who could, of course, just take his ring of keys and march her way around the building finding, because I guess everyone who lives in, in uh, my apartments was, had, keeps vodka in their freezer. Mm-hmm. Uh, she figured it out. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm paying $50 credits to every tenant that claims that their vodka level is a little under um, what, it, what they thought it should be, because I think she was just sipping her way around and hoping people didn't notice their vodka was a little less each time. But, you know, when you're managing uh, multiple apartment complexes, the, that's the kind of mess you have to deal with. It interrupts your you know, precious moments of your life with, yeah. you know, the plumber needs $5,000 to dig up your, you know, backyard or whatever. So I have focused my, my current investing in the last six years on San Diego, where I live, I can drive to the properties. Um, they're more expensive, but to me, the value has risen adequately with the, um, with, with the better properties than probably it would have been a place where it's cheaper to buy more doors. Um, and, and the, they've been easy to refi in terms of being me, being able to be sure they look great hire, you know, get tenants, uh, that, you know, I think are, are awesome and try and build long-term tenancies with people that like where they live. And that's just been a lot better for me as an, an investor to, um, to not rely entirely on an outside management company, but I do have, you know, I've got a good friend, Brandon Lofbridge in, uh, Missouri, who is uh, syndicating. So, you know, a lot of my friends have put money into his deals where they don't have to think about it. So they just say, Hey, I want to own a piece of real estate. He takes a, uh, you know, it's called the carried interest for putting the deal together and, and then a management fee to manage it. And they, you know, get exposure to real estate investments with a hustler running the deals. Um, and, and I, you know, that's this great opportunity for promoters, guys like you to say like, Hey, I've got time and energy and I want to be the guy to put a deal together, find the property, oversee the rehab, manage the mess. You know, you can find people that are a little more uh, along the, um, wealth accumulation path that are going to say. I'll put some money into that. Um, so, and, and, you know, that means in San Diego, you could live here and invest in Missouri and get the better, cheaper per door and better ROI in terms of rental income and, and not, not have, have to, to think. 
Yeah. Yeah. Not have to think about the tenant's vodka getting stolen and uh, whether you're going to get a call on your birthday to go, you know, to pay a plumber to tear your place apart. Hey, this is Michael. I'm popping in for 20 seconds here to challenge you to take the next step in your growth journey. I've helped over 40 business owners amplify their operation inside of my immersive one-on-one, -on -one, which is unlike any other coaching program out there. We'll be getting hands-on, doing content planning, script writing, ads optimization, customer mapping, and a lot more. So if it makes sense to chat, the link to schedule your call is in the description. All right, back to the show. I'm curious with the syndication play, because um, that's something I'm thinking about. I'm actually chatting with another friend and mentor about. Um, for you, is there, I guess, in terms of the the upfront investment there, is there a number that you feel like people shouldn't go under to make it worth it, or does it really just depend on, you know, the location, the property, the investment group, and all of those things? I mean, the more expensive the total deal, the more sophisticated you need to be, and the and and you'll probably put up higher minimum on the investment and you'll probably sell to accredited investors. So I'll give you an example. I did a podcast interview with a group that syndicates deals. Uh, my brother uh, and and his husband are successful, you know, wanted exposure to real estate, had investable funds. And I think the minimum was $75,000. So, you know, this is a meaningful minimum to put together on a $20, $20 million syndication. Um, the promoters in that case, you know, seasoned real estate investors, licensed brokers, you know, like been through deals and war, um, you know, they, they built into that like a million bucks in fees for themselves, a bunch of realtor fees, management fees and exit fees. And I think four years later, uh, you know, gave, had paid my brother two or three times his investment over the course of that in monthly recurring revenue. And then at the end of it, he got you know, more than the 75 he put in, um, some tax deductions throughout the time he was getting paid and he was ecstatic about the investment. So, but you, you can't come right out of the gate and say, I'm new to this. I want to do a $27 million apartment acquisition, right? You, you need to, you might be scrapping to put together a $500,000 threeplex deal. Um, and you're, you're taking five and $10,000, uh, you know, investments from your uncles and aunts and, and family. Uh, so size really is a, is a it generally correlates, I think, to your experience. The more experience you're going to get, start small. Uh, you know, it, work with someone else. You know, if someone else is like, well, you know, I've done this a couple of times. I want someone to really help that's going to hustle more than me because I've got, you know, some other things cooking. You might partner with someone where you take a smaller piece of the carry and and they put you to work and you learn, you know, uh, from their experience and from running a deal for them. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Um, and it's also interesting for me to hear you talk about real estate because my approach, and I've really just kind of gotten started, like I said, over the last like two years. So everything I'm about to share with you, this is all fairly new, but my investment uh, strategy, my portfolio is basically all in the sort of online space, um, the information product business, and then e-com. So just to give uh, my listeners kind of an idea of where I'm at. And then Dana, I would love your, your feedback, any thoughts on, on this. Um, so I actually parlayed a wonderful gift for my grandparents when they passed um, into a, an automated Amazon store. Uh, you may or may not be familiar with that, but essentially what you do is you find somebody that you know, like, and trust who has made money in e-com specifically in Amazon before. And it's the idea is for it to be a totally hands-off um, passive income Econ investment. So that was kind of my first, my first big thing. That was a 30 grand investment for the service. And um, it's like a, a lifetime waterfall once it gets going. I'm still waiting on that to kind of kick in. Um, we're sort of in the seasoning period right now. So that's one piece of it. And then recently, like within the last two months, I learned about this site Flippa, right? And that's basically a site where you can buy other people's businesses and they can list them, they go on auction. And then just in the last month, I acquired another e-com store for not that much. It was like $2,000, I think, cash flowing, I think, uh, like 600 a month. Now, there's going to be a little bit of a ramp up period, right, where I had to hire a virtual assistant that was experienced in that, you know, start understanding what needs to happen from an ads perspective and all of those sorts of things. So I've got that. I've got my own things, right, my own coaching work, but I'm still in the process of ramping up. And then I also bought two ebook, um, they're basically like ebook and course, small, I don't even know if you could call them companies, just projects that were already 
already uh, cash flowing. And so, um, and then I have a, a network marketing business as well. So all those things working together, my goal when I first started is a little bit different from where I'm at now. Dana, what are your thoughts on that? Does it sound like too much is happening at once or do you kind of recommend people jump in and take on as much as they feel like they can, they can do at the beginning? Yeah, so that's a good question. And the there's a lot of talk of multiple streams of revenue is yes. I'll call it the du jour uh, entrepreneur speak, right? So we've all heard it. And and I think there's truth to that. So I'll use me as an example. I've got real estate income. I have courses that, that produce income. Um, I've got uh, investments I made in companies where there is there's income. Um, I've got some websites that make money that don't require much attention, like I talked about free legal aid. Um, and then, you know, I have a portfolio of stocks and, and bonds and, and the traditional investments that are, you know, I don't do much on. So if you look across this, you'd say, oh, I've got five or six or whatever sources of income. And then I have some investments that I don't think will produce income, but they're businesses that should at some point scale and grow. And, and those will be one big payment or a total loss. So the, the you know, the, the a broad stroke is yes, multiple streams of revenue. The question for you becomes, are these multiple streams of revenue or are these multiple jobs? Yeah. And that exactly. kind of comes back to the, to the existential question is, is this, a, is there a side gig in each of these? And if it is, what's the minimum you need to put in in order to maximize it? And for example, if it's an investment where you just kind of gently shepherd in your spare time, something that's going to, you know, grow from 600 a month to 6,000 a month. That's great. And, and to me for a couple thousand dollars for a website on Flippa, that's not a bad gamble. The yeah. thing you have to say is that in a year, is it still making 600 bucks? And have you put a lot of time in, if you have, then you'd be better to consult, right? If, if you can bill 200 bucks an hour as a, as a coach, then, and you're putting, you know, five hours a week into your $600 a month website, it's probably not a good use because you just have to evaluate what you're doing for your time versus what you get if you just sold your time. And, and for almost anyone who's smart, you can sell your time, right? You, you know, you, anytime you've mastered something, you have something you can sell to someone that wants to learn that. And for a lawyer, I get the privilege of billing for all of that education and experience. So I'm $600 an hour now. And, and so I have to look and say, like, if I spent an hour a month nurturing a website that made $600, I could just bill an hour and make $600 and not have to be nurturing a website or what, the moment it's two hours, then I'm upside down, right? If then, then I'm spending two hours to make 600 bucks a month on a website and I could just bill two hours and make 1200 bucks. So some of the analysis you do with a side gig is that, like, is it taking a lot of your time is a huge piece of the, is it a, is it a side gig that's going to generate mostly passive income? Or is it a trade of your time for some income that's not dramatically increasing with the investment of your time? And if it isn't, then you sell it on Flippa. <laughs> a year from now, you know, you, you could get your two grand back selling your $600 a month website on Flippa. Maybe you'll get more. But uh, it's not a bad experiment, but you do have to be sure the pitfall of like having six jobs uh, can be really distracting from what really could be uh, a big deal, a, a big home run for you. I, I, uh, there was a point, I think I called it this in the book. I, I considered all the businesses that I had helped create, even if I wasn't the main guy at one point, they all felt like crying babies. And, and like I had eight little babies that were constantly crying and I was the guy that had to go fill the bottle with milk and bring it back. Well, that milk was either my time or my money. And that this gets burdensome, right? Because I should be making money with less time. And when, when you have a bunch of ventures that have gone the other way, where they're taking a bunch of your money and a bunch of your time, the quicker you can cut those loose and, and pivot to something that's working, the better. That's also something I learned from a lot of, of my peers, the ones that have done well at, at sort of having lots of side gigs like you do right now, is being a little bit more merciless with when they cut something. They sort of like give it the time, season it, be sure that it's not going to take off and then move on to something else, cut, cut it, cut the uh, line and sell it for what you can extract yeah. some value and move on. Yeah. That, that really resonates. I guess, you know, I'm kind of looking at, so with, with the, the e-com store I mentioned, I bought, you know, on Flippa, it's, it's a, a yoga clothing and apparel store. When I bought that, you know, and I think something that would be valuable for our listeners too is, um, 
it's not just the cost of the business that you're going to be incurring and there's other there's other costs right there's other things that you need to factor in whether it's money time or energy i remember reading in opt out when you wrote about the uh was it like the the flower shop i think the the what shop you broke up just a moment um like a, a garden shop or a flower shop that that you guys bought yeah the uh, we had a plant nursery that nursery, yeah. i owned yeah yeah and you wrote about like the work that you that you guys had to put in at least initially to to resuscitate it and to get it back to making money and so um you know i like i knew going in it's not just gonna be this twenty five hundred dollar investment for example for for this yoga shop i'm gonna need to hire and pay a virtual assistant um to work for me at, at least at the you know at the beginning for probably close to 30 to 40 hours a week um to really manage this and because i don't want to do it i don't know how to do it and you got to factor all of those things in. Um, yeah. Is that important for people to be thinking about? Absolutely. Yeah. This is, this again is, it, it, if you take somebody who's doing, you know, doing a thing that they make money at, probably at a job, and they want to be out here working for themselves um, and, and autonomous, right? Own your own, if your goal is owning your time, you, you not only have to take that, that season that you've suggested as a year, it's probably a year or two yeah. of, of learning what you don't know, then learning the tools, then part of that is really like trying to put your hand into a, maybe something where you dabble and experiment or your partners with someone who's doing it, because that's going to teach you a lot about how much effort it takes, that there is no magic wand. You can get your virtual assistant and, and all that still going to take a bunch of your time. Yeah. So the, you know, the, the, I, I'm a, I'm a believer in, in planning, but it's a lot of people overthink planning. You know, if you've gone to business school, you've learned to write a business plan, I, they're, they're not actionable. The planning sometimes is just saying, I will, you know, take this website from $600 to $800. There's a, you set a goal and then you start to say, well, how do I do that? And as you fill in the how, that's your plan. You just say, oh, well, I need this many more, you know, I convert at this rate. I need this much more traffic to the website. So, and then you say, well, how do I do that? And then you go learn the thing that you need to do that. So I, I think planning for the business is a thing you can play with during this like runway time that you're going to have before you launch or do something or, or whatever it is, uh, but learn the, the sort of goal setting and planning to achieve that goal as a method of propelling yourself through any, whether it's side gig or like a real freaking business or real estate or whatever it is, you're gonna, you're gonna learn this pattern and it's not a pattern you learn from your job probably. Unless you're in an executive position, you rarely are part of the planning process. So goal setting and planning gets done by executive teams and most people aren't in the position to be part of that process. And even those that are sometimes don't understand that this is how you propel a business. So that to me, that's a, that's a piece of your learning, but also I'd say if someone's at a day job and they could buy a $2,000 site on Flippa, that's a great opportunity to start to force yourself to say, okay, I, I have to set a goal and then make a plan to achieve that goal. And then I will right now do the work to achieve that goal and see how much time it takes me and see what the result is. Um, and that you might find that over the course of a year, you give up some uh, time on the weekends, you stop watching as much Netflix. And at the end of a year, you've invested hundreds of hours, but you're making 6,000 a month instead of 600. Now you're in a position to, to say, okay, I, I have succeeded. I 10 X this little business and it now has meaningful income. Maybe I can make the leap to work for full-time for myself. Maybe I can use this revenue to do it again. Maybe I'll just keep that going and, and find flip a number two. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. I think like the golden, like the, the golden nugget for for us as entrepreneurs and particularly for the side gigs that we that we invest in is to get enough side gigs pumping, working behind the scenes autonomously, putting cash into our account, requiring, like you said, as little input as possible for the maximum output to where it can actually replace the need for us to hold or to carry a job. And I think that's that's definitely where my mind is at right now. Um, I kind of got all these, all these in play. I don't really care which one, um, kind of rises to the front. I don't really care which ones may not. It's all about the process, right? And learning over time and optimizing what's working, cutting your losses where it's not. 
and and then just leveling up, you know, getting better, going bigger, continuing to, to reinvest in yourself and in your businesses and new businesses. So I love that. Um, I guess just to wrap up, Dana, this has been incredible. One of my last questions is what are some relatively unknown side gigs that people are not focused on yet, but that you're seeing as big opportunities in the market? Okay, so I'll, I'll, I like small things that, that uh, big companies maybe can't do well. Yes. Um, and I think one thing is lead gen. So the big companies need leads. Uh, the, the, and they pay for those with some mechanical precision. They know what the co what, what they're going to make on an acquired lead, so they're willing to pay a certain amount to get that lead. And they're running those numbers against their own marketing campaigns. So to find a way to get leads for a niche and then set up direct relationships to sell those to somebody is to me like an opportunity that presents itself across multiple industries across the country, around the world, you could do it from anywhere. And, th and there's a lot of methods for that that might be as simple as a content site where you write reviews about something that's relevant to the content. Um, you know, I've spent the last couple of years in HVAC and plumbing. Um, and so there's, you know, the, the I just read an article on trends.com um, that Angie, the company that, that used to be called Angie's List, is just killing it in home service and they don't have to run home service, they just have to get the leads, right? So this entire business model of theirs is lead gen. And you know, I think there's room for people to take that to the next level as well. So for example, if you knew your niche, you could not just get a lead, but you could actually curate the lead. And for example, a, a cold lead for an air conditioning visit might be worth 30 bucks, 40 bucks, I don't know, you know, it depends on a lot of factors, but let's just say that's what it is. Um, but if you have someone that, that you know that, you, for example, you warm them up, well, how old's your air conditioner? Um, or, you know, do you think you need to replace it? You could actually curate leads and then hand over hot leads to somebody who will pay a lot more. Um, so to me, lead gen, and, and there's just room for uh, call centers. You can create call centers for lead gen. Again, if you want to go out of the side gig world and go, hey, there's a real business, literally, People can't find a way to, to answer the phone fast enough when, when they're doing their own lead gen. So um, lead gen is an interesting one that has a lot of kind of tendrils where you could play. Another one that I think you know, I talked about it years ago in, in the first iteration of opt-out, and that is the service of doing something that you don't actually do. So intermediate, intermediation of a service someone needs for the most base example is probably logo creation. You need logos. I'm going to get you logos. My, you know, 250 bucks, I'm going to get a logo. And then you get your logos made by somebody that's offshore that, you know, does 10 logos for 50 bucks. And, um, it, you know, the arbitrage of, of your ability to take the skill you have as a native speaking communicator that, that understands how to sell to your consumer, uh, is a, is a tool you can use to say, okay, I don't care what it is, like uh, teaching people, uh, you could learn anything, right? You could learn how to use StreamYard that we're using for this the talk right now, but there are probably people that need to get on StreamYard that would pay you to get them on StreamYard, right? right? Because you and I know from using the software, you've got to like watch some tutorials and you've got to learn how to use the software and connect it to your social uh, account so that it's live on that social account. So there are people, for example, as authors, in their fifties that are like, I don't, I don't need the brain damage. I have more money than time. Michael, what will you charge me to get me set up on this and, and do, do everything for me. And so there's room for people that are just more ambitious to say, I have, you know, the ability to show someone how to do this. So the, and, and sometimes that might even mean just selling and then handing it off to somebody who's the nerd that does the work or mm -hmm. the art graphic artist that does the work. Mm -hmm. Um, so to, to me, those are kind of the still like easy access, aligned fruit, you no experience that could turn into a real business, but that makes money without having to spend a lot of money, which to me is the hallmark of a good sidekick. You're not, you know, it's not a business plan. You need to go raise hundred thousand or million dollars for, you could do this if you just stop doing something recreational on the weekends or evenings and, and have a business in a short period of time. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, what a great conversation. I think my big takeaway, you know, is 
kind of what you what you teach and what you preach in, in the book is you know a lot of entrepreneurs they get into they, they they try to go into business with the big thing they want to start with their thing that's going to carry them to the top and that might be a good strategy for some people depending on your skills your characteristics your niche and your business plan right but more often than not an easier and maybe less known way is to just start acquiring side hustles or building your own multiple side hustles that can then give you the cash flow and the experience and the knowledge to then go and figure out what you're what you're good at, what you love, and what you're able to ultimately, you know, do and create from a business standpoint. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I, I love that. And and get the skills doing the thing too. This is the beauty of of side gigs and, and the smaller side of entrepreneurship is it teaches you all those things that you don't know, you don't know with very low cost and very low risk. And it doesn't feed your ego to be running a $600 a month side hustle when you meet people at a networking event and they're baller, you know, um, it, but you're not in this for your ego. You're, you're in this to become autonomous and, and to work, you know, control your life, control your time and your destiny. And to do that, cutting your teeth on, what might seem really small is should be, you should take that as a big win and you should yeah. celebrate it. You should feel great about it. And you should, you know, let that teach you what you need to know to take it up to the next level. A hundred percent. Well said, well said. What a great conversation. Dana, let people know where they can find you and maybe your books and the best way to get in touch with you. Cool. Uh, DanaRobinson.com. Uh, I've got, uh, I'm updating the content right now, but at the bottom, there is a sign up for my uh, MailChimp uh, email list. Um, I have a um, email that I send out that will have a, a link for the free uh, PDF copies of both books that are out. Um, and I'm working on another book right now that should come out toward the end of the year. Um, so anyone who's on my email list will get an advanced copy of that and also get some offers for being on the, you know, the first uh, list of when it gets published. So DanaRobinson.com is the easiest way to get me and email is the same, Dana, DanaRobinson.com. Guys, I can vouch for for the knowledge he's putting out. I've got opt-out right here. He's literally giving away the PDFs for free, you just heard. So it's really about the knowledge. Um, Dana's been there and done it. And uh, um, I'm certainly learning so much from consuming his work. Uh, super grateful to have this chance to connect with you, Dana, and and uh, hopefully hopefully we can uh, remain in contact in the future. This has been really great. Thank you. Absolutely, yeah, great great to hang out with you, Michael. Uh, keep forging away on your on your path, but also to everyone who you're you know connecting with. Uh, you're doing great to just be an early evangelist while you're still learning to share the things you're doing while you're learning them is fresh. So anyone who's listening to Michael, stick with it and you're going to get the the blow by blow as he goes through his journey and you're going to learn from that. 100%. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, Michael. Hey guys, if you found value in this episode, it would mean the world to me if you share it with a friend and on social media and be sure to tag me so that I can repost and please rate and review as everything helps so that I can get this knowledge to as many people as humanly possible. All right. I'll see you in the next episode. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. My book, Content Capitalist, is on sale now. Grab your copy by visiting my website or tapping the link in the episode description. I also just released the online learning portal, which expands on what I shared in the book. This includes four hours of edited, captioned video tutorials and trainings, plus dozens of downloadables and templates. Between the book and the e-academy, you're going to be equipped to literally blow your revenue targets out of the water and eviscerate your competition this year, all by putting content at the core. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate, review, comment, and share all the things. And hit me up on LinkedIn if you'd like to connect. I am here to serve you. And that's it. I will see you in the next episode.